Church, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing us into this place to worship you today. God, thank you for the hope that we have through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that this morning you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and a will to respond to your truth. God, we pray that you would be honored and glorified through the teaching and hearing of your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to start us off this morning with a story. So you're going to have to use the imagination and go along with me a little bit this morning. Everybody okay with that this morning? All right, here we go. So imagine, and for some of us, we don't have to go too far in the imagination, but imagine a woman who is completely down and out. Her life is marred by one disappointment and hurt one after another. And she sought escape in all different types of ways, through alcohol, through drugs, through immoral relationships. And her lifestyle has actually landed her in jail many times. Her own family, her own community has cut her off completely. She is labeled as a lowlife. Someone who's only tearing down society and not contributing to it at all. And she keeps searching for things of this world to comfort her, and yet the more that she pursues it, the more destruction that comes upon her. Her life. She has finally reached rock bottom. She's facing 25 years to life in prison for being a repeat offender and for not paying her ever-growing amount of fines that she owes. Now imagine Dan Cathy. He's the CEO of Chick-fil-A. Imagine he's walking down the street. And walking down the street, he sees this lady. And there she is, and she's panhandling. She's asking for spare change. And there she is. She's filthy. She's strung out. And she's begging. And Dan Cathy looks at her. And out of an act of love and compassion and grace, he approaches her. And he says to her, I am choosing you to be the new president of marketing for Chick-fil-A. I want you to be the face of my company. The woman looked up puzzled. At Mr. Kathy. And she responded, how could Chick-fil-A want me? I'm not the type of person that anybody would want representing their company. And then Dan Kathy looked at her squarely in the eyes. And looking her in the eyes, he said firmly yet lovingly, it is my company. I can choose whoever I want to represent. Now come and follow Now let's say years have gone by, and later on we find out this same lady, she's been successful. She's been successful at Chick-fil-A. All her fines were paid by Dan Cathy, and she's never turned back to her old lifestyle. And imagine she gets an interview with 2020 Investigative Reports. They want to know, what did you do to turn around your life? How did this great turnaround happen? What do you think she would say? I want you to think about that answer. But what'd she say? Here's a report. The whole world is listening. What happened? How did your life get turned around? Well, what happens if she said, well, honestly, what really turned around my life is the great decision I made to follow Dan Cathy. How does that statement sit with you? Out of everything that was just painted about what took place, how does that statement sit with you? You think, yeah, that's perfect. That's good. For many of you, you're thinking, well, what wasn't really her great decision. 
It was really the love and compassion and grace of Mr. Kathy to stop and to welcome her to his company. But yet, a better response, a more proper response, would be something like, I wish, I just wish that I could take credit for the change that has occurred in my life, but I cannot do so. It's because Dan Cathy is he who had found me. It's him who found me when I was lost and I was without hope. He gave me this new life. It was him that gave love and gave compassion and gave grace to me. It is that which has changed my life. So please don't give me credit for this life change. It was a gift that I have received. Now, if you are here as a fellow Christian, this is exactly what's happened to us. This same scenario is the life that we have come out of and that God has bestowed grace and love and mercy upon us that we were those who were lost without hope. And Jesus called us to come and to follow him. He gave us new life. And just like this lady, now she's to be a witness of the goodness of what Dan Cathy had done for her. We're to be witnesses for what the goodness of God has done for us. You know, we are what we are by the grace of God. That's why. This morning, my desire for you is that you would know the love, the compassion, the grace of God that he has towards you, and that you would understand by receiving all of that, that in every aspect of your life, you would bring him honor and glory. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of our message is Sovereign Grace, and we are picking back up in our study through the book of John. If you have your Bibles, we will be in John chapter 6, picking, on, picking up where we left off last week in verse 41. As you're turning there, I want to talk about this title, Sovereign Grace. It's made up of two of God's attributes. He is a sovereign God, and he is also a God of grace. The sovereignty of God is his total control of all things past, all things present, and all things future. That nothing happens beyond his knowledge and his control. All things are either caused by him or allowed by him for his own purposes and in accordance with his perfect will and timing. And what about the grace of God? The grace of God is his unmerited favor toward those who have not earned it. It is undeserved favor. I want you to keep that in mind as you're opening up to John chapter 6. Now as you turn there, I'll pick you up and put the context back in place for you. As we've been studying through this, the day prior, Jesus had fed the multitudes bread. From two loaves and five fish, everybody got fed. Thousands and thousands of people. And here they are on the next day, coming to him again, and they're looking for another handout. They're looking for another meal. But instead of him giving them more bread, he declares himself to be the true bread from heaven. He declares himself to be the bread of life. That whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Think about that offer. Sounds like a pretty good offer. He says, you're coming just for one more day that will fill, fill up your physical body, but what about your soul for all eternity? This morning, we're going to see the response. So if you look into your Bibles at verse 41, we're going to pick up there, and we see the response of the Jews. 
We see in verse 41, it says, So the Jews grumbled. This word literally means they made an audible noise of disapproval. Some of you know what that sounds like, unfortunately. But they make this audible noise of disapproval about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now here's the problem. They're going to go on and explain, we know who this guy is. How could he say he came from heaven? Look at what they explain in verse 42. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Everything was on the physical realm for them. They came for physical food. Jesus said, I am spiritual food. Jesus said, I have come down from the Father. And they go, no, no, you're just from Mary and Joseph. Completely missing it and excusing it away. And Jesus answers them in verse 33. He says, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That verse 44 is where we're going to launch into in great depth this morning. Because if you look at it, some just go, whoa, what does that mean? And how does that happen? But Jesus continues with that. He says, I will raise him up on the last day. There is a promise that we'll also unpack from Jesus. And he says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets. He's quoting Isaiah. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Here's what Jesus is doing. She says, you guys come here and you say that you know who God is. But if you know who God is, you know that the prophet has said you'll be taught from God, then you would know me. Because I have come from him. And if you stand before me and you say, you don't know who I am, it's because truly you're not taught from God. You're not his. This, by the way, church, is very confrontational. How many of you like confrontation? I'm hoping you don't. Shouldn't be something that we have. Let's see, who can I pick one with today? Let's just go. Hopefully you try to avoid it at all costs. However, there are times that it's important. There are times that we have to confront people because of truth. And here you have people grumbling. They're trying to excuse away Jesus, saying, well, he's just from the earth. He's not really from heaven. We don't want anything to do with him. And he goes, but you proclaim to know God. And your own prophet said that you'd be taught from God. So if you were, you would know me. He says, not that anyone, it's verse 46, has seen the Father except him who has come from God. He has seen the Father. He's speaking of himself. He's proclaiming himself to be one with God. That if they truly knew the Father, they would know him. And lastly, we see in our text, he says, truly, truly. And he said this over and over again. He says, whoever believes has eternal life. So this is what I'm here to offer you. I'm here to offer you eternal life, not a one-day meal. But I'm offering you something for all eternity. Church, as we just skimmed over this passage, verses 41 through 47, there's a wonderful biblical tension in this passage. I hope you picked up on it. Jesus says that we must believe in him to have eternal life. We must believe in him. But he also says, we cannot believe in him unless the Father draws us. There's a, there's a great biblical tension there. I mean, here's the tension. We must place our faith in Christ. But we can only place our faith in Christ if the Father gives us the ability to do so. Look again at verse 44 with me. And here's what we're going to unpack today. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
We started with the story of Dan Cathy and this lady. This lady was not going to get that job being the president of marketing, particularly on her own merits. She had to be called to come, to follow. She had to be given the invitation, the opportunity. And as we unpack this, we're going to see this is exactly how God acts on our behalf. That the invitation comes to us. You'll see at the second half of verse 44, Jesus attaches a guarantee to those who are drawn to him that Christ will raise them up on the last day. They will inherit eternity. That's great hope, church. That is not they might, they may, but they will. Those whom the Father draws to Christ, they're often referred to in Scripture as the elect or as the chosen. How many times have you come across those words? And how do you define those words? Who are the elect? Who are the chosen? Scripture says these are those who were predestined. They were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, speaking of the Father, says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, sure, it's a good thing He chose us before the foundation of the world because none of us would be qualified. Who here in the entire life has walked holy and blameless? Then none of us would be saved. But it was before the foundation of the world that He chose us. A handful of verses later, in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1, we read that in Him we've obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He's predetermined it. It's according to His will, according to His grace. And some verses that many of us hold near and dear in our pocket, we use them often. We tell people, you know, all things work together for good for those who love God and call the glory to His purpose. How often do we pull that one out? It's a great verse of hope. But let's look at it with a little bit more context in it. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. We read, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Jesus just said in verse 44, and I will raise them up on the last day. That is being glorified. That is the promise. That is who they're speaking of. That God has selected. God has determined out of his great love. God has chosen. And I'll tell you this. There's one of me up here, and I'm looking at a bunch of eyes over there. And some of you are like, how does this work out? I mean, I mean how, how do you fully explain this? And I'll tell you, I haven't got a there are some things that God is God. And He gets to determine what He's going to do. But I'm going to try today to walk through some scriptures with you to help you understand in God's Word what He says about it. But ultimately, these things are higher than us. These things are beyond us. How do we deal with the biblical tension that you must believe? You're accountable to believe if you are in here today. And you know that Christ has died on your behalf, paid the penalty for you. 
You must believe. You must come to Jesus. It is your responsibility. And yet we read Jesus say, well, no one can do that unless the Father draws him. How do we reconcile those two things? How do we put those together? You know, this doctrine of election that God chooses, it's one of the doctrines that have been wrestled over for many, many years. There are people on, on all sides of this, but it's come down to two big camps. One is those we would call Arminians, and the other are those we would call Calvinists. And some of you are like the Huonanins and the Wudwuts. That's okay. It's okay. But there's two camps, and they're seeing things differently. Sam Storms, he actually explained this. He does a much better job than I can do, so I'm just going to read what he wrote about talking about Arminianism and Calvinism. The quote should be up here. It says, According to Arminianism, election is that act of God whereby he foreordains to eternal life those whom he foresees will respond in faith to the gospel. Okay? According to Calvinism, Election is that act of God whereby he foreordains to eternal life those who, because of sin, cannot respond in faith to the gospel. Okay, so let's address the first. Some of you looked at that and go, that didn't really help me. I thought you said that was going to help me. You got me nowhere, Pastor. You just read that, I read it, and I still haven't got a clue what you're talking about. Well, let's unpack the first one first. Those who believe that election is based on the foreknowledge of God. You know, they reason something like this. They say, in God's foreknowledge, he sees in advance those who would choose him, and so he elects them. Like, he, he can see all things. There's no time to him, so he can see down the road. He'll see who responds to him, and those are the people he'll elect. That's the Arminian point of view. And I must confess, when I was a younger Christian, I actually held this viewpoint. I held this viewpoint because... It's easy to understand. It's easy for us to wrap our minds around it. So if you're here this morning, you hold that viewpoint. I'm not condemning you. I've been there. It's reasonable. It's easy to explain God's actions. If we just say, well, God just looked down the road and he saw that you were going to choose him, so he elected you. It just, it just seems to make sense. It avoids all these arguments from people of, why does God choose some and not others? We don't even have to go there if we believe this. You just say, well, God picks those who are going to pick him anyway. Well, it's interesting. Because there's a main problem with that viewpoint. And the main problem is, Scripture doesn't support it. At all. You say, well, Pastor, are you disqualified? You said you used to believe this. I did, because it was easy to say this is how it works. My mind can understand this. But to have to dig into Scripture and wrestle with the things that Scripture says, that was much harder. And to have to deal with people and talk about, well, why does God do this and not that? Church, I don't know. He is God. He does all that he pleases. But Scripture does not support this viewpoint. Scripture is clear that God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. That's Psalm 115.3. Our God's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And such he is free, as Romans 9.15 tells us, to have mercy on those whom will have mercy, and to have compassion on those whom will have compassion, it's his choice. He does whatever he desires. But Scripture is also clear about something else. It says that we are totally depraved, that we love darkness rather than light, that we will not come to the light lest our darkness be exposed. Well, that's a problem. Back to that biblical tension. We must come to Christ. We must believe in him. But Scripture says that we won't because of our sin, because we love 
darkness. And therefore, that's where God steps in. His divine grace, His sovereign grace must be poured out upon the elect to draw them to faith in Christ. And that's what Calvin believed. That's what Calvin put forward. And that's what I wholeheartedly and unashamedly believe because, not Calvin said it, because that's what the Scriptures declare. And that's what's going to be our final arbiter in all things that pertain to life and godliness is what the Scriptures declare. Not our opinions on what makes sense to us, but thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says. So let's go through a handful of examples. For some of you going, well, I'm still not there, and I don't get it, and I still like the first one better. Well, let's go through a few examples. If Arminius was correct, that God elected those whom in his foreknowledge he knew would choose him, this would be a works-based salvation. And I know many of you know better that it's by grace that we are saved, not of works. It would be dependent upon our actions, not upon God's actions. So if God looked down and said, well, let's see who's going to act and work on their behalf. Okay, I'll choose them. That's dependent on us. We no longer need grace. It's we made the right decision. We did what we need to do. But we know that we're not able to do that because of our depraved nature. Let's look at this. Paul writes into Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. In reference to the Father, he says, He has saved us and called us to a holy calling. And look at this. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4? That we should walk blameless and holy before him? Look, he didn't look out in the future and go, oh look, there's that guy and that lady and they're holy and blameless. He chose them before the foundations of the world. Here we see the same thing as he writes to Timothy. Romans chapter 9, verse 16 tells us that salvation is not dependent on anything that we do for ourselves but that it's solely dependent upon God. Romans 9.16 So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Church, we still have that biblical tension though. We must believe in Jesus Christ. We must come to Jesus Christ. There is no other way unto the Father except through Jesus Christ. There is this tension though that says, come, but Jesus says you can't come unless the Father draws you. I want you to keep that in mind. In the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, we see a great example. Paul and Barnabas were preaching the word of the Lord in Antioch. We pick it up in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. It says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And wait, ready for it? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You guys hear the record scratch? Oh, it went off of my head. I don't know. It wasn't out loud? Wait, break that down a little bit. As many as were appointed. Look, the word of the Lord went out to everybody there. The call went out to everybody. Come to Christ. He is Savior. He is Lord. You must be saved only through Him. That Christ died on your behalf. He rose from the dead on your behalf. He intercedes on your behalf. Come to Christ. I'm sorry, I'm yelling. I'm so excited right now. I'm yelling so loud it's bouncing off the back wall back at me. I'm like yelling at myself. But we read here, as many as were appointed 
to eternal life believe. So those who would respond to the gospel were those who were before the foundations of the world. They were selected, hand-chosen, hand-picked by God the Father. They are those who believed. You sometimes wonder, the gospel just went out. Why did he or she believe and none of them believed? How did that happen? It was the same words that went forward. Because they were chosen. They were selected. On another occasion, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're in Philippi. And Paul was sharing the word of the Lord with a group of women. Acts chapter 16, verse 14, or Acts chapter 16, verse 14. We read, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Look at the next sentence. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. As though blinders would fall off the eyes, she was able to hear the truth. Although she was religious and go through the routine of being a worshiper of God, she knew not Christ until her eyes, her heart was opened up to pay attention. And you know what? Some of us share the same testimony. There might have been one time in our life someone had shared the gospel and we were like, no, nah, I don't want anything to do with it. You might have been like, I'm not listening, I'm not looking, I'm not anything. No way. And then all of a sudden, another time, everything came alive. What happened? What was different? The sovereign grace of God. It was the sovereign grace of God. Why now, not then? Because all of our hearts in our natural state are hardened to the things of God. Why all of a sudden is it softened? Do you know anything about pottery? When I was little, my older brother, who's six years older, I have no idea why he wanted a pottery set. But I still have this vivid memory. This little round circle would go around, and it would splatter all of us with all this clay, wet, water, clay mixture. He didn't make anything that was worthwhile. I just remember things just spitting out clay. But after we had our fun playing with it, we left it there. We came back a couple weeks later, and you know what happened to that clay? It was a rock. You're like, oh, that's a waste. But no, you can save that clay. You know what you need to do? Pour some water on it. Something needs to be added to that clay. Some water will make it moldable and shapeable again. And that's exactly what the sovereign grace of God does. He comes to give us a new heart, to give us something that's moldable and shapeable and teachable. It's entirely an act of the sovereign grace of God that brings salvation. And this is why Jesus says in our passage this morning, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He says, I'll raise him up on the last day. He says, you can't come to this on your own. You're going to want to run from the light. You're going to want to scatter and chase after your darkness. But when God's grace intervenes, you will come. You will receive. We, we studied last week in John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All those who were chosen before the foundation of the earth, they will come. And there's security. Later on in this chapter of chapter 6, Jesus will repeat himself in verse 65. He has given a hard teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And people are like, whoa, this is way too hard to understand, to, to receive. And he says in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Have you ever wondered, I mean, we often tell people, you know, the Bible says that many are called and few are chosen. Have you ever wondered what that actually means? I've heard it used in all different kinds of contexts. But what was Jesus talking about? That many are called, few are chosen. 
Look, the gospel goes out to the whosoevers. You know, whosoever shall believe shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. The whosoevers it goes out to. But those who respond, as we saw in Acts chapter 13, are those who have been chosen by God. Those who have been appointed to eternal life. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said the elect. The elect do not have a yellow stripe painted down their back. He said, if they did, I would go through London pulling up shirt tails and seeing who had a yellow stripe and preach the gospel to them. That would make evangelism a lot easier. He said, but since God did not paint a yellow stripe down their back, I preached the whosoever's. The gospel goes out to everyone. And it's on behalf of the elect that we share the gospel. We don't know who they are. You don't look at somebody and say, oh, he's bald with a goatee or a beard. He must be the elect. He's probably not. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you can't judge. You can't say, oh, they're a good person, so they must be chosen by God or, or whatever. It could be the lady who was strung out at the end of a rope, and she's the elect chosen by God. That God will completely transform her life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says this. He says, Therefore I endure everything. All that he goes through, he says, I endure it for the sake of the elect. Let me ask you a question. Those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, did Paul just go out and talk to people that he knew were chosen by God? No. He went everywhere to preach the truth of the word of the Lord. This is the gospel. But he says, look, all that I'm striving for, all that I'm doing, it's for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Faith comes by hearing the words of Christ. So how is someone to hear unless we go, unless we share the words of eternal life with them. Paul says, that's what I do everything for. I strive that the elect might come to faith in Christ. In Titus chapter 1, Paul starts off, Titus 1.1, 1, 1. he says he's a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. He says, I'm here to preach the gospel, but also raise them up in the truth. It's for the sake of the elect. Church, how many times have you read across these words in the New Testament? We read elect. We read the chosen. Paul says, look, that's my ministry. It's unto them. But Paul didn't look at somebody and say, no, no, we're not going to minister to you. I don't think you're chosen. He ministered to all. He loved all. The gospel went out to all. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, he writes, For we know, brothers, that you are loved by God, and that God has chosen you. Loved by God. We talked about it last week if you were here, but being hand-chosen, being hand-picked by God. If you're here this morning, you're a brother or sister in Christ, if you've come to faith in Jesus, it's because He hand-picked you. He adopted you into His family. He didn't look down the road and say, oh, look at those great works you're doing. I think I'll, I'll bring you into the faith. He said that they need to be walking holy and blameless. None of us. Because of his love, he's hand-chosen us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we read, But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, who are beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. I want you to get this in your mind. Because when you think about a God that loves you so much that he chose you, that he chose you, that he hand-selected you, 
He chose you. It's not because of the great decision that you made that I'm going to follow Christ. It's because He loved you. And He chose you for eternal life. Jesus said it very plainly. John chapter 15, verse 16. He says, you, you didn't choose me. I chose you. You want it simple? That's pretty simple. That's pretty straight. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And that's why John writes in 1 John 4.19 that the reason we love is because he first loved us. This great and wonderful God has hand-selected you for eternity. It's out of his abundant love. Him being a God who is sovereign, he has poured out his grace upon you, he's called you unto himself, that you would be the chosen, that you would be the elect, that you would be the saints of God. Saints of God. You, some of you came from, from a Catholic background. How do saints work in Catholicism? It's based upon their works. You were chosen before the foundation of the world, that you would be saints of God, that you would be the chosen, that you would be the elect, those who would respond to Christ in faith. Those who had turned to him to believe and trust in him, they were selected. They were hand chosen. Church, this is wonderful news. This is glorious news. It should cause us to rejoice in God. Do you realize how much he loves you? Do you realize that? Or is it just an academic thing? Hey, we know God is love. Yeah, what's next? Teach us something new, Pastor. He loves you, he hand selected you. He picked you. And just like the lady in the story when we started off, she in the story was rescued by Dan Cathy. But she knew that he deserved all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. Not her. He came and rescued her. And we too have been loved. And we've been loved, and we've been shown grace by our amazing God. And it's to him who belongs all the praise and the glory. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Listen in response to that. Peter writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Are you ready? There's a comma. Here's the reason. You want to say, why did God choose me? God, don't you know who I was? I was just like that lady. I was without hope. I was at the end of my rope. I had nothing to offer. Why would you choose me? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Has God's love been poured out upon you? Let people know. Let them know what a good and glorious God that we have. That he is a God of love and mercy and grace. That he's a God of compassion. That once you were this, but now you are new in the Lord. I don't have to go back there anymore. I've been freed from all that. I am now a new creation in Christ. You who have come to Christ in faith, you're a new creation. That that old junk that comes up in your head, that old person, they're dead. You are alive in Christ. And you're to rejoice that he has loved you, that he has chosen you, hand-selected you. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious truth this morning. One that is 
God, honestly, beyond us as we talk about this biblical tension that occurs in this passage. But God, what we do understand is that you are a God of love, that you are a God of grace, and that, God, you are a sovereign God who has control over all things. And, God, sovereignly you have given salvation to the elect. God, I pray in this place if anyone would hear these words today and yet come in this place not knowing Christ, that it would be your spirit that would draw them unto Jesus, that they would turn to him in faith to receive him, that there would be repentance. They would turn from their way, turn to Christ just to take him, to receive him, to follow him. They'd be given new life, given new heart. God, for the rest of us that come in this place, that you have done that miracle in us, that you have poured out your sovereign grace upon us, you have drawn us to faith, God, we praise you. God, help us to glorify you. Help us to proclaim the excellencies of you to all those outside these walls, that you might receive all honor and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.